Pythagoras Podcast, episode number 12. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to be joined by John Bush, longtime libertarian activist, podcaster, entrepreneur, and founder of Freedom Cells. Check out today's show notes for links to all of John's projects, which you can find at urbanagorist.com slash 12. While you're at it, if you're interested in giving Kratom or CBD a try, or just learning more about these natural remedies, be sure to use my link to John's shop, Brave Botanicals. You can find it in the show notes, or just head to urbanagorist.com slash brave. Now, with that, let's get into it with John Bush. All right, John Bush, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Well, uh, so since it's your first time on the show, I, I kind of like to let people introduce themselves rather than me fumble through their their resume or whatever else. Um, so do you want to just kind of tell the folks what, you, what you're up to? Sure. Well, I uh, live here in Central Texas. I'm a father of two amazing little sovereign kiddos. I'm into entrepreneurship. My um, revenue, my my income comes from selling natural health products, Brave Botanicals, Kratom, and CBD. My activism as of late has involved encouraging people to participate in alternative institutions and to try to create uh, the foundation for us to build an entirely new free society for ourselves and future generations to enjoy. I've been deep diving on topics like the Great Reset and Agenda 21, which early in my activism back in the 2002 to 2008 or so, I really focused a lot on the conspiratorial view of history. And since COVID has popped off, it's got me learning more and not just learning about it, but figuring out strategies for us to insulate ourselves from all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, entrepreneurship, activism, alternative institutions, and trying to create a more free world. All right, cool. Um, so tell me, what is the conspiratorial view of history? Is that like Alex Jones stuff or is there actual like scholarship or what? what is that as opposed to like, say, the 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 Whigs or the great man theory of history or, you know, whatever else is it, a, is it like an actual established school of thought? <laughs> I guess it's, I mean, yeah, there's definitely intellectuals and research long train of research and, and books and well-researched stuff. And, you know, Alex Jones, love him or hate him. He's out there and he's not, you know, a lot of, not everything he says is hundred percent accurate, but the guy was way ahead of the curve in predicting big brother, nightmare, police state, global government stuff. And, just keeps ringing true and like pedophile elite, for example, he was way ahead of the curve on that <laughs> one. Now it's pretty mainstream knowledge, but the conspiratorial view of history is contrasted with the accidental view of history. And so the conspiratorial view of history holds that many, most world events, major world events are contrived. And there's a small group of people that have conspired in order to bring about big events and big changes. And like G. Edward Griffin defines conspiracy, there's two elements. One is that there's two or more people involved. And two is that there's some element of secrecy uh, and some element of deception. And usually they're carrying out unethical ends or illegal ends. And so they conspire together. And so I'm a strong believer that the conspiratorial view of history is much more accurate than things are just happening by accident, coincidence, or, or by chance. Sure. And I think that's, I think that's obvious that, you know, it, it's, 
there is stuff going on beneath the surface that nobody knows about other than the people who are doing it. Um, you mentioned G. Edward Griffin. That's a name that um, I hear a lot on the podcasts and stuff that I listen to, but I don't know who he is. Can you, uh, can you kind of just sort of define him as a person, I guess? Sure. One thing about conspiracy these days, it's like an open conspiracy and they just put their stuff right out there and the masses aren't, you know, able to even understand it or comprehend it. They would just as soon laugh or ridicule it off. But these days they really put their plans out there for all of us to examine. And it's just the problem is that not many people care. But uh, Geodra Griffin is an old school activist, researcher, public speaker. He has been exposing the conspiracy and communism and international bankers and the Federal Reserve for, I don't know, like 40 years now. He was an early researcher and, and railing on how international bankers and Wall Street helped to fund the Bolshevik Revolution and Nazism. And he wrote this awesome book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, which really exposes one of the most sinister conspiracies, which is the conspiracy to create a banking cartel in the United States of America. And yeah, he's been around the scene for quite some time. He's a predecessor to all of the the big researchers and big folks. He does still does this annual conference called the Red Pill Expo that they actually have it at Jekyll Island where where the you know the Federal Reserve Act was hatched. So yeah, if, if folks aren't familiar with me, it's definitely worth looking into. And the book Creature from Jekyll Island, I used to run an underground libertarian uh, conspiracy bookstore, and that was one of our best sellers. It's really thick, but if you want to understand how fractional reserve banking works, how the Federal Reserve came to be, how it really is a banking cartel, and how these globalists and conspirators work together in an effort to create a global government, and I, I think that's a great piece of literature to to check out for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one of the things that, like, even the even the people who would say that you know the nine eleven truth movement is a bunch of kooks or whatever. Um, for some reason, that book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, has some degree of credibility. Uh, it's definitely, it's in my library. I haven't read it yet, but uh, I know it's one of those ones that's just sort of an old standard that everyone who's who calls themselves a libertarian should um, probably get around to at some point, sort of, sort of like for a new liberty or something like that. Yeah, that's another good one. Um, so you said that... Uh, the conspiracy or the conspirators have kind of moved out into the open. I think that's probably um, just something that they've had to do in the information age. Um, what, so right now, like we're looking at the, the great reset, which I hear is sort of just a, a the, the, the old new world order in new skin um, from some people. Other people say it's a whole new group of people. I'm not sure. Uh, do you have like an opinion on that? Well, yeah, some people call it New World Order 2.0. Uh, the Great Reset, I just define it as a marketing plan, a clever marketing plan. It's a, like a repackaging of much of the same efforts that have been underway for quite some time. Uh, Agenda 21 is something that's similar. Agenda 21 is this document that was created in 1992 at the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit where they seek to use environmentalism and sustainable development in order to bring about more top-down hierarchical controls. And the United Nations is the ones pushing that. And of course, it's the insiders, the Rockefellers and all these roundtable secret society groups 
like Bilderberg's Council on Foreign Relations, so on and so forth, all these tax-exempt foundations mm-hmm. that are behind all of that. But the Great Reset is actually the brain, uh, the brainchild of Klaus Schwab, who who is also on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group. But he is the founder of the World Economic Forum, which meets every year in Davos, Switzerland. And these are oligarchs, billionaires, some of the wealthiest, the 1% of the 1% that meet to chat about economics, especially and it's their iteration. James Corbett of the Corbett Report does a lot of good work on Great Reset, and he kind of pointed out that this is the World Economic Forum kind of put positioning themselves to lead the charge to expand uh, global governance and top-down controls. And a lot of the stuff, the open stuff like Agenda 21, the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, Agenda 2030, and the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, their their strategy is to kind of uh, market it as though it's this great, peachy, shiny, wonderful thing for society, and they're combating environmental problems and extreme poverty, right? And the progressives and most average, you know, people that are involved in politics or follow politics would think that's all great. But when you dig a little bit deeper, and you don't even have to dig that much deeper. Again, it's an open conspiracy that, that, like, the World Economic Forum puts out this propaganda, these articles on their website, and then a lot of them get published as editorials in mainstream newspapers and magazines. And it's like, the year is 2030. I own nothing. I have no privacy, and I couldn't be happier. And so they're really just priming and kind of desensitizing people to what is to come and 2030 is their big goal so we can expect we already are witnessing it right this isn't something that's a far off plan it's already well underway and uh, we can expect to see some drastic changes this decade which is why a lot of conspirators and conspiracy researchers and and conspiracy theorists and truthers they just stop it we got to wake people up about this but what i'm really interested in is more practical solutions what can we do to insulate ourselves from this coming technocracy which is ruled by experts and technology and more importantly how can we live in a way and relate to our fellow humans a way that's more in line with our our inherent sovereignty yeah so what do you think about that what what um what should we as libertarians and particularly as agorists uh, who kind of, I mean, to me, one of, we're, we're seeing kind of a big split between the various factions of libertarianism. I mean, there's some that still want to stick around and fight the progressives. Um, and then there's others who just want to separate from the system entirely as much as they can. What do you think of that? Well, I uh, I did political activism for several years and was pretty good at it. We had some successes, but as I've pointed out, they weren't they they were like empty victories. So we weren't actually taking any steps forward towards creating more freedom. We were simply slowing the growth of tyranny, which was unsatisfying for me. And so I quickly realized there's there's got to be a better way to pursue liberty than begging our rulers or trying to win over fifty percent plus of the population. And so you know, I used to be kind of a arrogant jerk to people that were doing libertarian party politics, for example. And then I realized like, man, I'm just kind of being an ass here. But I do think that if someone only focuses on arguing with progressives or only focuses on party politics or lobbying or political activism, then they're doing themselves a great disservice. They're simply going to be trapped in the political paradigm. Even if they unseat the established ruling class, then, you know, like Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's what happened in the American experience where the rebels were 
you know, classical liberal, had some libertarian leanings uh, in the American Revolution, and then they kind of sold out with the Constitution, which was more of an aristocratic instrument that ended up creating the most powerful central government the, that history has ever seen. But, um, you know, you get caught in a cycle of revolutions, political revolutions, where you're just revolving, right? The root of revolution is revolve. And so it's like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So if people are going to do that, then I would strongly encourage to also engage in post-political activism, agorism, counter-economics, participating and encouraging others to participate in alternative institutions, mutual aid, freedom cells, alternative currencies, uh, mutual defense groups, growing your own food, natural health, opting out of the Western allopathic healthcare paradigm. I think that's really where the magic is at. And unfortunately, folks that aren't, you know, at least have both feet in, you know, both feet in both doors, they're just going to be spinning their wheels. Ideally, everyone's just like, you know what, the institution of government, we, you know, we've read the Rothbard, we know it's inherently corrupt. That's a <laughs> fact. So it's like, how do we get from here to there? There's enough of us where if we all just abandoned the state and stopped participating and worked up our strength in numbers and got organized, then we could effectively opt out and find true freedom in our lifetimes. But not everyone is on that wavelength. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do through my podcast and my activism these days to try to get people to understand that there's a better way to do liberty activism. Yeah, that's kind of the way I see it as well. Uh, and I almost, you know, to me, I, I, most people are not libertarian and most people are not going to become libertarian just because you make an argument. And, you know, I mean, when you have politicians promising all this stuff and you have government, you know, I mean, it, it makes them feel better to have the police station down the street and not have to worry about, you know, a scary mutual defense organization. Um it almost electoral politics, libertarians engaging in electoral politics to me almost feels like imposing our view on on statists. And, you know, I, I don't I don't want to impose myself on them any more than I want them to impose themselves on me. I mean, there's something to be said for, you know, voting in self-defense. But at the same time, uh, where do where 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 has that gotten us in the past? I mean, nowhere. Yeah, and that's a great insight. Um, there's a variety of reasons why the Libertarian Party is not successful politically. One of them is because they have terrible marketing and optics and don't seem to get it. And another is because they don't ever really have political victories. Like the people that are running are just – I mean ideally you have somebody run that has a successful business at least so they can apply that to politics. But a lot of times it's just dudes that have been in the party for 15 or 20 years and they're running for the 12th time to get 2%. But the real reason why the Libertarian Party is unsuccessful in my opinion is because a majority of the electorate doesn't want liberty like we do. They, like you said, want to have the comfort of the police department down the street or the entitlement programs. They want to have Social Security paid out whenever they retire. And um, they've been inculcated since elementary school that the government is the way we organize society. Both conservatives, where they're more patriotic in America and they have all these traditional values and ideals, and the progressives, where they're like the state is the mechanism, democratic socialism is going to help us. These people – a large majority of them, we're not going to be able to convince. We can pick off folks from the fringes through rational arguments, but at the end of the day, we need to 
figure out a way for us to peacefully coexist with the statists, right? I'm not a smash the state or overthrow the government type of activist. I think that that isn't fruitful in the first place, but a bunch of people want to be governed, you know, and who are we to take that away from them? So we just need to figure out strategically, how can we insulate ourselves from that? How can we still exist in many of the same geographic areas where there is a state institution, but how can we opt out and decouple ourselves with that and do so without being crushed? And that's a lot of what the Freedom Cell Network hopes to accomplish. Yeah. Talk about Freedom Cells. So that's something that, did you, did you start Freedom Cells? Yep. I came up with the idea back in 2014 and uh, Derek Bros popularized it. And then since COVID's happened, there's been a huge explosion in interest. And I, I have more time with my business being a little more successful to get back into it. So I've, I've hopped back into the ring. And that's Derek Bros of the Conscious Resistance, who um, I I had always gotten YouTube. He's, he's, he's been banned from YouTube here recently, but uh, I'd always gotten... Uh, recommendations of his videos, um, probably because I was watching, you know, Ron Paul videos and stuff like that back in 08 and later. Um, and I, I always thought he was just some long haired hippie. Uh, I had no <laughs> well, idea. Definitely that too. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. But I had no idea that we were um, of such like mind. So, um, and, and actually I didn't, and I didn't, I really didn't realize that until I started listening to you. So you introduced me to him, even though he introduced a lot of people to you and to the Freedom Cells project. Um, so anyway, what what is Freedom Cells? Well, essentially, like you referenced earlier, like people don't want to have a mutual defense stuff. What we're, we're trying to create is like create the vehicle that will get us from here, statism to there, uh, freedom and agorism and agorist society. And so essentially it is small groups of people working together for mutual aid, mutual defense, and achieving common goals. And then those small groups link up with other small groups to form larger groups of small groups. And then those larger groups of small groups link up with other larger groups of small groups to form even larger groups of small groups. And uh, essentially it's a decentralized peer-to-peer mutual aid society. We're trying to create a free society as the existing society kind of crumbles and fails all around us. It all centers around an inner cadre group, which Mm -hmm. is approximately eight people, your closest allies, your most trusted confidants, and y'all work together uh, to work on common goals, mutual aid, mutual defense. And then you link up with seven other inner cadre groups, preferably in your local area. That forms what we call a middle cadre group. Now we have around 64 people. And the middle cadre groups spread across a larger region like the state of Texas, for example. We have a couple inner cadre groups and a middle cadre in Dallas, Fort Worth. Houston has some inner cadre groups. Austin has a couple inner cadre groups. So we would all link up to form what's called a meta cadre. We choose the number eight because there's this research by this guy, John David Garcia, that found eight people is the optimal number of people in a group to have the maximum amount of creativity. Creativity was his highest ethic. RIS ethic, ethic is freedom, but we're also creating and building and designing life, lifestyle design and new institutions. And so the cool thing about this organizational structure is that as it scales in number, it simply replicates itself horizontally. It never takes on a vertical hierarchical nature with bureaucracies or elected leaders or any form of of government whatsoever. It scales horizontally infinitely. 
using this process, a biological term called autopoiesis, where it just replicates. So before in Austin, we would have a middle cadre group of around 50 to 60 people. Well, as we recruit more people and bring more people on the network, now we have a meta cadre group and multiple middle cadre groups that are aligned on values, aligned on goals, or aligned based on the part of town that they're in, for example. So we have over 6,000 people participating globally. People can sign up at freedomcells.org. There's a member map. You can put an address for the park down the street and find people in your area, find cells in your area. If there's no one in your area, then we're hoping for you to step up in a leadership role and find and recruit people. And a lot of people are already getting a lot of real-world benefit out of the organization. Yeah, in my in my region or my area, really, it seems more like they're um, kind of hobby groups rather than rather than uh, what I would see as sort of a generalist um, just group of uh, agorists or libertarian leaning people. Um, I think there's like a like an aquaponics group that covers all of the upper Midwest, for instance, um, is that sort of an alternate use of freedom cells? Is it a misuse of it? What do you think? So it's, um, we try to make it like an open source idea and we want it to be as decentralized as possible. There's this guy named Falcon vine or however you say it. He was with the, uh, the pirate party in Iceland, maybe it was Sweden. No, I think it was Iceland, but he has this method of organizing called swarm wise where it's like, people that are involved in the organization can go and do what they want as long as they adhere to the values. And if there's like one or more people that think it's a good idea, just go run with it. So it's really hands-off. We try to be as hands-off as possible unless someone's calling for violence or initiating violence or, or being nasty and, and ugly to people, then maybe we'll go regulate or try to kick them out. But uh, yeah, there, there, there's like a core thing that we encourage people to do. That's the inner cadre group, like a more general purpose. But a lot of people have taken it and ran with it. And there's like a mastermind group for entrepreneurship. There's a lot of folks that are working together on gardening. And, and so it can, it can be either and, and both. Whatever works for people to help, you know, bring about more freedom and sovereignty. Cool. Yeah. And I'm going to link to Swarmwise because it looks like a pretty interesting book and it's pretty affordable as well. Um, okay. And so what... Uh, you know, any organization is going to be overtaken by the people who care more about the organization than the movement that it purports to to represent, like the Libertarian Party, for instance. How do you how do you present prevent that? Is that is it just that uh that that natural splitting and regrouping? Well, you know, I refer to it. I like to refer to the organizational structure, um, but you know, it's not necessarily an organization per se. It's it's a network, and so it's it's decentralized in that people can link up with or not link up with other groups and other cells and so there could be people that rise as leaders and there's other people that follow them uh, in other parts of the or of the group um, or not um, and then you know i really wanted it to be like the freedom cell network is an idea a way to organize and then people can take this structural foundation and they can say we are creating the arcadia society or we're creating the hill country mutual aid society in central texas and it's like there's these different entities or different networks that exist on top of the operating system which is the the nature of these decentralized groups so yeah, I'd like to think that the decentralized nature of the network 
will have some anti-fragility in it where it's going to be hard to be corrupted or taken over. And then certain groups and certain cells can simply disassociate from from others if they don't like the direction that people are taking it or if there's people that are getting all hardcore extreme or whatever, there's people that are being racist and speaking out against blacks or Mexicans or something, then it can be like, hey, we are going to excommunicate this particular group of people and kind of insulate ourselves from them too. So, yeah, you know, there's 6,000 people, not all 6,000 are organized into this network. That's just 6,000 people that are signed up on the Freedom Cells website. A lot of people just use the website as another social media thing. We built our own kind of forum set up, mm-hmm. social media set up on the back. Uh, it's really supposed to be about action and meeting people in person and getting involved. So yeah, it remains to be seen, but I, I'd like to think that the decentralized nature will make it less susceptible to corruption. Freedom Cells seems almost like uh a, a counterbalance to the conspiratorial view of history. I mean, you know, you read alongside night, um, the kind of great agorist novel, and you see these underground networks form um, or already formed that nobody really knows about unless they're, you know, initiated into it. Um, they've got their secret handshakes and um, sp- well, spoiler alert, they end up, you know, taking over the, the, the newly dissolved government. I mean, the the agorist sort of master plan is 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 enacted. Um, so, is that? I mean, is that your ultimate goal? Do you think Freedom Cells is the manifestation of this fictional thing online? Well, yeah, I, I read alongside Night back in the day. I need to go back and revisit it. And one of the cool things I remember from the book is that they would have their little underground center, their little physical space, and they would always have the next one set up anticipating the crackdown on the existing one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and the freedom cell thing isn't like an online phenomenon. Although, like I was just saying, there are a bunch of people that are just participating, networking mm-hmm. online. The real, where the rubber meets the road is people organizing in their area and doing meetups and stuff. And uh, it is a counterbalance to the great reset and the conspiracy to create a centralized global government. Um, back in 2014, 2015, I was well aware of, of this conspiracy, but it wasn't to the point of the great reset and this COVID nightmare we are dealing with. So there's like a dual purpose to the freedom cells. One is a defensive kind of reaction to the state, although it's a proactive response to it. And then the other, which is more important, is that I believe having a decentralized network to relate to one another is more in line with our freedom and will create an environment where humans can cooperate more and thrive and and innovate and and have a more flourishing life. But, you know, the perfect with the COVID stuff, that's why the Freedom Cell Network has exploded in growth. And like around COVID, when COVID started popping off, popping off, there's probably like a thousand people registered on the website. Now there's over 6,000. And it's just absolutely perfect as a defensive mechanism against COVID. We see the vaccine is beginning to be rolled out and there's been talk of mandatory vaccines. I believe what's more likely is like the New England Journal of Medicine has written about this, as have other law journals. And they say that maybe we should avoid a mandatory vaccine because we'll get caught up in court battles if there's criminal penalties. Plus, it'll disproportionately affect the poor. Like they're all so compassionate, wanting to force vaccines on people. <laughs> these yeah. goons. But they say what what would be a better approach would be to 
say that people cannot travel, people can't be employed, people can't enter public buildings unless they have their COVID vaccine. And of course, we see Bill Gates, who's like the modern day Rockefeller with his Gates Foundation. Mm. And uh, they're talking about digital immunity passports, immunity certificates. The World Economic Forum is pushing the Common Pass, which is like a cell phone app that shows you a green light that you have your immunity. This is all coming down the pike. And so one way that they are going to try to compel obedience is to take away what they see as privileges. And so the Freedom Cell Network is, is perfect in this regard because we want to create our own agora, our own free marketplace where we trade with one another, we employ and work with one another, we have companies, we get the supply chain is as internal as possible. And so we essentially take away that tool in the status tool belt where they're like, well, you, you can't go to the grocery store unless you have your green light on your COVID pass. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we haven't been using the grocery store for quite some time now. We have our own decentralized food production networks. There's a lot of cool overlap. I think I, I spoke about Freedom Cells recently to Jack Spierko's uh, at his Jack Spierko's workshop to the TSP community. And I think they really appreciated that real world application of that. Not to mention a bunch of them are already doing that, you know? And then it's like, well, shit, my employer says that I have to have a COVID vaccine in order to continue employment. And then, well, thankfully I've been working on my side hustle and I'm networked in with this market that is ready and willing to purchase my products or my goods or services. So mm. it, it, we, we're hoping to ease that transition and kind of give people more confidence in not participating in the system. And this is only going to accelerate. They're going to try to limit travel. So we'll have our underground railroad like Derek Bros is working on with routes from the States to Mexico. If people want to bug out, you know, maybe like alongside night, we'll just have the infrastructure and the wealth in place where we can have our own private airplanes that travel us around without having to go through all the all the nonsense. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity that the Freedom Cell Network provides for people to protect and defend themselves from what is to come. Not yeah. to, I mean, it's already here, the, the, all of this stuff, right? So, we trade amongst ourselves and we have our own agorist markets and at counter economic businesses, then we can keep more of our money and not fund the police state and the surveillance state and stuff too. How do we do that without getting the Ross Ulbricht treatment? Well, you know, Ross was way ahead of his time essentially. And there's always that, that tension between being really successful and bringing in lots of money mm-hmm. and staying scrappy and agorist and small. And so one, another insight to bring up Jack Spierko again, really glad that Jack Spierko got all voluntarist and agorists because he has such a big audience and he's such like a wise dude with the way that he approaches a lot of this stuff. But he talks about the importance of an inside outside game where you have your established business, you report income, but even, you know, being an entrepreneur as opposed to an employee, there's more creativity that you can utilize and leverage the tax code, right? But then on top of that, you have your counter economic balance, you have your side hustle, Hmm. you trade mostly in cryptocurrency. And I think what is going to help ease that transition is strength in numbers. And this is precisely why I started the Freedom Cell Network. I I was like meditating on, everyone wants to opt out. I'm doing conferences and, you know, I'm in this coalition and this network with a bunch of radical libertarians and voluntarists, and nobody wants to participate in the state, but a good majority of all these folks are still paying their income tax and they're still 
have a driver's license, for example. And it's like, so what can we do to make it easier for people to opt out and not be so afraid? Because we're rightfully all afraid, right? Um, And so I thought that the, the solution is strength in numbers. And so what I envision is for there to be so damn many of us and we're all slowly and subtly opting out. Many are like 100% agorists. Like I went to this event, uh, MidFest Liberty Fest in Spavanaugh, Oklahoma. And there were a few guys that were like, what do you mean fly? You flew recently? I won't fly TSA. They're like, a, <laughs> they're like older guys too that have nothing to lose, I guess. And they're like, they're all the way opted out. They're freaking, then there's people riding around with like the private place, non-commercial use tags and stuff. But mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, we have 6,000 now, eventually we'll have 60,000, eventually we'll have 600,000. And like alongside night, like New Libertarian Manifesto, I would like to see us pull our resources and hire private defense, private security agencies on top of everyone being able to use firearms themselves and training with firearms, using them safely and proficiently. We and, you know, we slowly pull our income out of the statist institutions and then that extra revenue can then go into private security. So we eventually reach a point where it's like, hey, we're no longer using your institutions. We're not using your health and human services. We're not a part of your government health care schemes. We don't call the police. We're all armed. And in fact, we fund our own security networks that defend our network of intentional communities, for example, or the agorist ghettos like new, like Samuel Konkin talks about in New Libertarian yeah. Manifesto. And that essentially, I hope, will make it easier for people to protect and defend themselves from, from the state. Do you think there's... Um... Do you think there's room for collaboration with the Black Lives Matter protesters for things like that? Um, I'm not talking about the ones who are, you know, gung-ho statists. I'm talking about the ones who are uh, very interested in community policing. Um, Here in Minneapolis, following the George Floyd killing, um, one group, one neighborhood uh, is now in the the process of purchasing an ambulance, for instance, so that they can separate themselves from uh, from, from that system, at least and they, they want to separate themselves entirely from the nine one one system is, is yeah. I think their, their ultimate goal. Um, but these are leftists. Uh, so what, what do we, what do we do about stuff like that where there might be common cause, but, uh, ultimately, um, perhaps incompatible political philosophies. You know, um, back in the Occupy days, I guess I just looked it up. It was 2011. Um, I had a lot of these similar ideas, and I put a little bit of energy into trying to coalesce with folks in the Occupy movement, many of whom are some of the similar figures and similar philosophies that are in the Black Lives Matter. Um, And it, it never really gained a lot of ground. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of folks that are really left leaning are. I don't know, kind of narrow minded when it comes to the politics. And, you know, I'm speaking in a generality, of course, there are folks that are like, yeah, let's jive together. Let's jam together. We're all about working together on common goals. I used to have humanize, harmonize, localize as our little political activism tagline for this pack that I helped to found. And it was about being transpartisan and transcending petty partisan politics and working together on common issues. But I don't find a lot of hope in that. I do think that things are so divided and everyone seems to be so hard headed that there would be a lot of resistance and it would kind of be like 
unnecessary towards our goals. Mm -hmm. That being said, if there's people that are interested, if there's opportunity, if there's folks that are, you know, agorists that are also out protesting and supporting the BLM movement, then there might be some overlap there. But if it's people that aren't already involved or aren't already really passionate about the whole police brutality and, and anti-racism, I don't know that it would be a good idea to go start putting a bunch of energy into that. Um, I'm kind of like the whole anti-racist thing is it like I'm not alt-right or anything by any means, but I see that like there's just the progressive social justice thing has just gotten so strong and so intense mm -hmm. that I can see how it pushes people more towards this kind of vitriolic right position. Like I'm critical of a lot of the extreme like white privilege and you need to check your privilege and read books and, you know, like pay your penance for what your ancestor, all this stuff. And and then everyone like sees racist racism there where it's not, not to say that there isn't racism, nor there is an institutional racism. Mm -hmm. Like I always, there's progressives that I'm still friends with on Facebook and I'm really trying my hardest to make it a habit not to engage folks that I know I'm not going to be able to win over or we're not going to get anything out of it. There's so much work to be done. There's so much solutions that we can focus on. I'd like to spend more of my time helping our movement to opt out and to build these alternatives and to find more safety and community. But like people will be just like loving Biden and oh, the Biden's in or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, you're still falling for this politics. You're going to be disappointed. And then they're always like, well, what are you doing besides not voting? And I love it when they ask me that. I'm like, well, I've helped to organize a 6,000 plus person global community where we work together on mutual aid, blah, blah, blah. And so I posted that and you'd think people would be like, oh, well, that's, that's pretty cool. I'd like to learn more about that or whatever. But instead, a lot of people were like, I wonder how much minority representation is in that group. It's probably just a bunch of white men, white privileged men that are, what is it called? Uh, cisgendered white men. And I'm like, oh my God, give me a break. And then at the next yeah. uh, meeting that we did in Houston, I never have thought about this. I've never been at a Freedom Cell meeting and been like, let's count how many African-Americans are here, how many Latino he are here. But because those conversations were going on, I was at the next meeting and I was like, you know what, let's see what's going on. And it was like 33%, you know, I just never even think about it. It doesn't really matter. So I don't know, when you were asking me that, what popped into my head was the age old thing, like, there's not enough black people in the libertarian movement. Therefore, we ought to go recruit more black people. It's like I never really got into that little race identity politics thing. I will yeah. say, though, I do see and I have I did do police brutality activism for about two to three years and did a lot of great work. And we went into marginalized communities and we mm -hmm. gave out cameras and we trained people with know your rights trainings and stuff. So I do see that there's a problem, but it's I don't think that it's necessary that we go try to create more diversity or, or whatever. Yeah. I think it's important to, you know, recognize um, where systems of oppression impact certain groups of people even more than they might impact you and me uh, while at the same time, not pandering and patronizing. I, I, I think infantilizing um, people simply because uh other activists might infantilize them is probably counterproductive. And, you know, I mean, resisting that probably attracts more people than um, acting otherwise would. I mean, Spike Cohen for all his great work completely failed to win over probably any minority votes, despite inserting himself into the activist movements over the summer. 
Yeah, I saw some of the pictures and stuff, and he's like all proud that he's hanging out with black people is what I got from it. On that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a little dark way to look at it, pun intended. But no, it's it's I don't know. If it's natural, if it's like your thing, if yeah. you've been doing police brutality activism or if oppression, you're a libertarian and you're really concerned with oppression and protecting marginalized communities, because there are communities and racists and socioeconomic groups that are harmed more by police and by the state in many instances. And so that's something that is important and something that we shouldn't deny. But I think at the end of the day, like the the solution is always to empower people to take more responsibility for their lives, to defend themselves, to work for themselves, to provide for themselves and their community. And so that's just the message that I put out. And you know, on the on the lack of minority representation in the libertarian movement in general and libertarian party, I think a lot of it does have to do with like a lot of libertarianism has to do with property rights and, um, you know, taxation is theft and mm-hmm. leave me alone to do my business and stuff. And I think that I don't like to use the word privilege because I don't think that we should. It's not a privilege to not be oppressed. And when you say that a Caucasian person has white privilege because they are it's easier for them to get a job compared to an african-american person in some instances for example or they're not as likely to get harmed by a cop if they're walking down the street at after dark by themselves right and wearing a hoodie or something right i don't like to say that's a privilege i just like to say that it's advantage some people have an advantage in those instances it shouldn't ever be seen as a privilege to not be oppressed in my opinion but I think that, you know, the libertarians, they're trying to protect their property and stuff. And a lot of folks in the African-American community, they're still trying just not to get abused by the cops or trying to put the pieces back together after the CIA shipped crack cocaine into uh, California and all throughout the United States. And after Joe Biden, for example, and his big crime bill broke up black families and locked up the fathers of children that grew up listening to gangster rap and didn't have a father figure, right? So there's a lot of brokenness and fracturing. And a lot of that has to do with the conspiratorial view of history too, to keep the black man down because black culture and black history is like, there are some very powerful people, right? Mm -hmm. And very strong people. And it's just been completely, not completely, but it's been really just wrecked by external forces not even just the classic traditional racism that the country experienced throughout its history, but, you know, that started getting broken up by Martin Luther King and all that stuff. And then it's still stuck around even some places in the South, but like some really hardcore stuff, like the shipping in the crack cocaine, the Tavistock Institute, leveraging gangster rap, all the crime bill, breaking up families, all that stuff, that's all taking place. And so I think one of the reasons, again, why there's not a lot of minority representation in the libertarian communities because libertarians are like wanting to protect what they have. It's not what my goal is, although that's a goal. It's more like experiencing freedom we've never experienced. We're destined for this. We deserve this. But a lot of it's like protect my money, protect my business. Don't take money from me. And I think a lot of the black community is still like, we don't want our children to get shot, you know? Forget money and property. We don't have that to begin with. So, yeah. Um, Switching gears a little bit, uh, you're so you're in a very heavily regulated industry. I mean, to the point where you can't even accept credit cards. Um, what's that like? And would you recommend other agorists and libertarians getting into a business like that? Like maybe even like hemp farming, where they're where they're, you know, needing to fill out thousands of pages of paperwork for the state to run a well, business. 
So when you say a highly regulated industry, I think that that isn't an accurate way to describe it because okay. in reality, in like almost every state, I sell Kratom for the audience. And so Kratom is illegal in six states. And I can tell you why I think that's the case. And then there's a Kratom Consumer Protection Act that's passed in a few states. That's something that the American Kratom Association comes in when a state is trying to ban Kratom. And they're like, hold on, instead of banning it, let's just add these regulations and let's make the Kratom vendors have to register and do tests for everything and so on and so forth. And so that, besides those places, there's zero regulation. There's zero federal regulation on Kratom and there's zero state regulation here in Texas and in most states. So in that regard, it's a wonderful thing. But like you said, it's not even really, I mean, I guess it is a regulation. Um, it was supposed to have gotten overturned but there's this thing called Operation Choke Point. It was a Department of Justice, Obama era um, policy that tried to limit money laundering when in reality, all it was was the federal government pressuring the banks that pressured credit card companies not to do business with undesirable industries like adult toy stores, CBD, Kratom, gun stores, head shops. These are my favorite industries here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I always throw that joke out every time I bring this gets brought up. So it is difficult in that regard that I can't accept credit card or debit card. Um, but other than that, it's highly unregulated. So, but you know, it is, it is, it's not agorist in that it's prohibited, although it is in some places, or that you have to ask permission to do it, but it is agorist in that it's it's genuinely anti-state and defies the state, and the state does not like it because of their big pharmaceutical influence, right? So it has been a big hurdle selling Kratom. Uh, for those not familiar, Kratom is a member of the coffee family. It's made from the powderized leaves of the Kratom evergreen tree. The red varieties are good for chronic pain, relaxation, sleep, the white varieties are good for focus, energy, motivation, stress, and anxiety. And the green varieties are kind of in the middle. They're good for stress, anxiety, taking mm -hmm. the edge off. And so the government doesn't like it. A lot of people take Kratom instead of prescription pain medicine, instead of anxiety medicine, instead of sleeping medicine. And so it's literally taking business from the pharmaceutical companies. So they try to put out propaganda. They tried to make it illegal in 2016. So in spite of all that, I have managed to find some great success in this industry. And I think it's because I've been persistent. I've been taking massive action on this front for three years. And I really have a good grasp on marketing and how to educate people and be in front of people and get attention from people. And then of course I have the free ounce offer, free ounce of Kratom.com, free ounce of Kratom.com. And so it's just like, all you gotta do is pay shipping and you can try it. That's helped to bring in a whole lot of new customers. But yeah, I mean, if there's other folks in the in the that are agorists that that want to try something, I think selling kratom is a great opportunity. Selling natural health products is a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. You brought up hemp. Now, hemp farming is something that's extremely highly regulated. Yeah, and, and see, I thought that these were similar industries, but I guess not. No, they're similar in some ways. I do think that. So obviously, hemp is attached to cannabis. So there was all this, uh, you know, what was that chronic? What was the name of that spook film back in the day about uh, the propaganda piece? Reefer Madness is yeah. what it was. So there's a whole history of, you know, bastardizing cannabis and making it all scary. And conservative lawmakers still buy into a lot of that propaganda from 80 years ago. Um, but it, it, it was a gray area. It was kind of like a counter-economic thing. And then finally, the law caught up with the people's sentiment. And I think that Kratom is yet to have that experience. I think that 
in time, Kratom will become more mainstream. It will become more widely adopted and the government in all their statist glory will be like, well, maybe we do need to get a piece of that. We do need to tax and regulate it. And I do think that it'll move more towards the hemp style regulations as it becomes more popular. And, you know, I'll have good positioning because I'll already have market and already be doing it. And I think once it becomes more mainstream and people are like, oh, I thought that was some weird sketchy thing that my brother-in-law takes or something or something that people take to get off drugs, um, that'll kind of be overcame. There'll be more regulations and stuff. I'm a free market guy. Like, I don't think that we need to rely on the government to regulate. All my stuff is tested. It's not required to be tested, but it's tested by my supplier every every bit that I get, you know, and we have the labeling on the back that shows the nutrition facts and all that good stuff. It's unregulated, doesn't require that. Good market actors will just do what the market desires in the first place without having the government need to need to step in on it. Yeah. I, well, and I really enjoy this stuff just um, as sort of an endorsement of it. Um, I've been drinking Kratom tea or mixing it into a smoothie every morning for, I don't know, several months now. Um, and I did my free ounce, which lasted me forever. Uh, mm-hmm. So thanks for being super generous on that, by the way. Um, and then ended up buying th- three or four more um, ounces of it in sort of different varieties. Uh, I started out, I think, um, taking too high of a dose. Uh, I actually, I just messaged you a few weeks ago, um, <laughs> because I was kind of freaking out. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was shaking and hearing the whoop, 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 whoop. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, you have to, you have to calibrate. Um, I'm now at, uh, I'm, I've got a kind of blend of a green and a white variety. Um, that's really working well. I mean, it just helps me wake up, takes the edge off a little bit. Um, and is a great way to start my day uh, with my with my day job as well. Um, getting through the inbox and getting through the early meetings and stuff like that. So uh, I guess next up, I'll have to try one of the red varieties. Um, and then just, you know, in case anybody's wondering kind of just what it's like, what it looks like, um, it's a powder. It doesn't dissolve. Um, so it's not like sugar. Um, it's kind of like matcha green tea, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tastes the same as well. So the way that I prepare it, uh, I put a few drops of stevia in a hot in a hot tea preparation um, and then a little bit of almond milk uh, or else I just mix it into a smoothie and you don't notice it's not gritty or anything like that. Um that's a good way to drink it. I just drink it straight with water, but I know some people do that or they'll drop a little lemon in that. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's great. And then uh, also I'll put a link to Brave Botanicals in the show notes. And then um, my discount code is Agora, I believe. Um, I'll have to double check on that. If that's wrong, then check the show notes for the right one. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mentioned freeouncekratum.com earlier. Don't go to freeouncekratum. Be sure you click on the link because James is an affiliate. So he'll be able to get a little... Yeah. to the action. There's all sorts of folks in the Liberty community that are affiliates now. And one cool thing about, there's this concept of having a dream customer, this mm-hmm. guy, uh, Russell Brunson, who I learned a lot about marketing from, he's the, where, where I learned about the free offer where you build trust and you offer something for free and then you educate the customer and then eventually they work their way up the value ladder. I like to say client actually, instead of customer, customer's transactional client is more of a relationship. It, and, and, and you do take a very consultative approach as well. The, um, the salespeople will spend a lot of time on the phone with you to help really kind of pin down what exactly you're looking to do. If, uh, if that's the method you want to go, otherwise you can just order it, you know, either yep. way. Yep, for sure. And so, uh, yeah, it's great to be an entrepreneur and I strongly encourage folks to, uh, to look in and, and just take massive action. It takes a lot of persistence 
And when we were talking about the great reset earlier and control, if you're employed by someone, then they can kind of hang that over your head and threaten to take things away. But if you're an entrepreneur, then you essentially have the freedom to act on your own and, and be in control of your own destiny. All right. So uh, I guess we're pretty much out of time. I'd love to know kind of what you're up to. I, I heard that you're doing crypto consulting. So if you'd like to plug that, great. Um, and then anything else that uh, that uh, where people can find you or um, other business ventures, stuff like that, that you've got going on. Yeah. So I've, I've been involved in crypto since 2013. And uh, like way back in the day, it might even been 2012. I remember being at Porkfest and we would sell breakfast tacos for a Bitcoin, like two <laughs> breakfast tacos for one Bitcoin. And man, I've had so much Bitcoin come into my hands and then it was my income for a while. So it would come in and I would immediately spend it to pay you know, for rent and for groceries and stuff. Um, so now I'm finally in a position where there's I can hold on to a little bit of the Bitcoin. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I do have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom when it does come to cryptocurrency. And, you know, I've made all the mistakes and I've learned from them. I've bought uh, low and sold high and I've bought high and sold low as well. So I think I have some unique insights to offer people when it comes to setting up a wallet, how to purchase the Bitcoin, how to secure the Bitcoin, how to keep it safe from hackers, and more importantly, how to keep it safe from yourself and user error, which a lot of people uh, engage in, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm doing consultations now. If people are interested in booking one, the website for that is SovereignBTC, SovereignBTC.com dot you can book dot me sovereign btc dot you can book dot me and then i started a podcast up again recently i uh, just published my 58th show that's another thing like looking back i wish i would have kept doing the same podcast mm. from 10 years ago you know i'd have like thousands of episodes like old tom woods and, and jack spearco <laughs> um but uh, i started back up again and people can find that at live free now dot show live free now dot show and i Great. cover a lot of the same stuff that we we've talked about today cool and i'll link specifically to that crypto episode because i got a whole lot out of it it was just from this past weekend actually i believe oh right on um well i guess it'll be two weekends ago when this airs because i'm posting it next monday but either way um <clears throat> i'll make sure to post to that to that podcast episode on crypto um, great. Uh, well, thanks a lot for your time, John. I'm going to let you get back to your family and I hope that you have a great rest of the week. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I see you've, you've interviewed a lot of really cool guests. And, uh, if this is your first time doing podcasting, you're doing a great job, really smooth flow and keep up hey, the good work. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, John Bush, for joining me today. Head to urbanagris.com slash 12 for today's show notes, including a link to Brave Botanicals, where you can use my discount code URBAN for 5% off your order. I gave the wrong code in the interview, so be sure you use URBAN and not whatever it was I said a few minutes ago. I've got some pretty exciting announcements about the show coming up later this week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the show with your friends. And if you have a free minute, please leave a review on iTunes for me. Even if you're listening on a different app, it really helps to get the word out there. So until next time, live free. This is the way I